ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of The Journey Show. Oh, the cameraman's going crazy. I'm Gideon Marcus. I am your host, The Traveler, and today is a special arts and entertainment edition of The Journey Show. Can everyone see me? Is, uh, is Telstar working today? We're having all sorts of interesting satellite situations because we have guests from all over the world tuning in, not to mention attendees from all over the world. So if things get a little weird, that's okay. Our lovely moderator will tell you what to do to stay in the game. In the meantime, I'd like to give you a word from our sponsor. Today, The Journey Show is brought to you by the fine people at National Geographic, bringing you the world for just $3.95 a month. That's right, if you're upper middle class and can afford the cruises and other luxuries in these pages, you can see the world. They also have these wonderful little photo diagrams for you. National Geographic, bringing you The Journey Show. So we're gonna go right to the news. In the Dominican Republic, starting in the end of April, a coup took out the pro-President Bosch forces and attempted to replace it with a military junta. Immediately, a counterattack kept it from occurring. Uh, American forces were deployed to assist the American citizens there and to restore some sort of order. However, snipers are continuing to attack American forces. At least 10 have died, several are wounded, and it is unclear when the Organization of American States will have a plan for the Americans to leave. Will we be stuck in two hemispheres to protect governments? We don't know. In other news, the National Air and Space Museum has been inaugurated, at least conceptually. In Washington, D.C., there will be a giant building devoted to the history of American spaceflight, including planes and spacecraft and other aeronautical features. On, April, on May 4th, we saw the last episode of the brilliant comedy, That Was the Week That Was, originally a British show and now an American show. It is, in fact, one of the main influences for The Journey Show. We will miss them, but I understand that the songs penned by Tom Lear will be out on a record sometime this fall. In Washington, D.C., uh, actually, pardon me, in Miami Beach, Leo Diorsi, the famous attorney and agent, owner of the Washington Redskins and partial owner of the Minnesota Twins and pro bono agent to the astronauts, was laid to rest just a few days ago. As you can see, the Mercury 7 are taking him to his final destination, Leo Diorsi. And on May 6th, the second Lincoln Experimental Communication Satellite was launched. This satellite going into an elliptical orbit will test all sorts of advanced communications features that will no doubt lead to a revolution over the next 10 to 20 years. Watch out for the Lincoln Experimental Satellite. Perhaps the Journey Show will be brought to you through its auspices in the near future. And finally, Connie Wilkins Jr., who was indicted in the murder of Viola Lucho, a civil rights activist murdered in her car on the way back from the Selma and Montgomery marches, was acquitted by a 10 to two jury 
apparently the defense attorney used such disgusting, vile and racist language in his defense, including multiple use of the, the N word, um, that uh, this may have actually influenced the majority of the jurors to go against Connie Wilkins. However, two of them decided that the uh, FBI agent in the car, who was in disguise as the Ku Klux Klan member, had unreliable testimony and decided to let Connie Wilkins walk. Will there be justice for Viola? We won't know for the next year or so. And that's the news. And now I'm going to introduce all of our fine panel of guests, starting with uh, Hugo finalist, Cora Bullard, all the way from West Germany. Take it away, Cora. Well, hi, everybody. I'm Cora Bullard from Bremen in West Germany. And um, I have a bit of news which um, Gideon hasn't mentioned yet. Namely, just yesterday, our soccer or football team, team regarding, depending on which um, side of the Atlantic you are, Werder Bremen won the German championship. So green and white forever. Go Werder Bremen. <laughs> And um, yes, and um, otherwise, well, I um, talk about German science fiction. It's a journey and write about German science fiction. And um, I also seem to have ended up our arts and architecture correspondent. And so that's what I will be talking about today. Some new trends in arts and architecture. And I'll be and very happy. Sorry. <laughs> and our next, <laughs> we have a delay because light has a finite speed, we've discovered. Uh, our next guest <laughs> is a most esteemed, honored guest, the only woman producer for the BBC, the producer for the hit TV show, Doctor Who, which is now in its second season, Miss Verity Lambert, take it away. Hello, everybody. I'm happy to be here. As he said, I'm Verity Lambert, and I currently am a producer for the Doctor Who show. It's been a very exciting run. Uh, as you may or may not know, this will be my last season as producer. I have handed over the reins. I know. It, only for you, Gideon, will I release such news. <laughs> but um, I look forward. I am so sorry. I really am. Please don't cry. <laughs> And I look forward to answering any questions uh, all of you out there might have. Thank you for having me. Our next guest on sound only because Syncom does not have the bandwidth to, uh, to broadcast all the way to the uh, studios. However, the esteemed Vicki Lucas, one of Galactic Journey's longtime associates, originally started in the letter column. The next one could be you. Uh, is our expert on avant-garde music and other cultural affairs. Take it away, Vicki. Hi, I'm currently marinating in the incredible San Francisco culture that is just blooming at this time. I'm going to the Clay Theater, seeing the movies there as they, as they appear from avant-garde filmmakers and listening to music. Yes, like that. <laughs> And we'll be playing uh, a clip of uh, one of her favorite compositions shortly. And our final guest, if we have sound, do we have sound, Erica? I think so. Can you guys That's hear me? Amazing. The miracle of technology. <laughs> Take it away, Erica. Uh, hi, I... Uh, 
cover a lot of the weird and strange news. Um, I'm enjoying reading Timothy Leary and Dr. Alpert's psychedelic journal and watching for books and releases in the witchcraft revival movement that points out that witchcraft is an ancient tradition that goes back to the prehistoric worship of the sun and the moon and the animal spirits and hoping that there is soon a, a new book on tarot cards released here in the United States and hopefully a new deck. The last one that was released was sometime in the 50s. And of course, I don't have that one. So uh, I, I read an article yeah. on the, the new rise of paganism in Life magazine. And I understand if we were all to be paganists, we're all quite overdressed. Yes, there, there is a great deal of, of uh, the, the nudist movement overlaps with the pagan movement a lot. And that we should be living our most natural and free lives. Well, and, just and for the audience at home. Where clothes for status or anything. It is up to you to guess whether or not the traveler is wearing pants. <laughs> uh, and, and with that, I have a question for our lovely moderator who is off the screen. Do we have any questions from the audience yet? Yeah. All right, so we're going to have questions soon. Um, so the topics for today are several fold and somewhat eclectic. Part of the reason why we have brought in Miss Verity Lambert is because at the intersection of TV and art, we have this amazing song that is the opening song to Doctor Who, which I'm going to play right now. What's really amazing about that theme is it's a triumph of music. Um, it's It might sound alien to you or it might sound conventional to you, but they actually took dozens of hours to put together and lots of technology that really was a pioneering, uh, 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 really pioneering and cutting edge. Um, Vicki, you wrote an article about that song. Can you tell us a little more about it? Well, electronic music um, is still in its, I wouldn't say infancy exactly, but um, there are some marvelous things being done. I wasn't really aware of this particular woman who created this piece um, until I researched this, this, this exact piece. She uh, is in, with the BBC. She got into the studio and took over uh, this piece. It was, she, she did write it in uh, collaboration with a man who was there. Um, but it's, it's kind this of is, unusual. This is Delia Derbyshire, correct? That's correct, yes. Um, it is unusual to see a woman doing electronic music at this time. 
but I have been familiar with seeing Pauline Oliveros at the Tate Music Center, so it is not completely unfamiliar to me. And we'll be playing a piece by Oliveros later in this program. Um, Miss, Miss Lambert, uh, why was this particular piece chosen? What, what, what is remarkable about this piece and that opening? How, how did they do that cool effect? Well, we don't want to give away too many trade secrets now, do we? But it, it just, we didn't want something, because as, as you may or may not know, the show had started out as a children's program. So we didn't want something that would scare them, but yet would catch their attention. And when our sound team came up with this, it was so, pardon the phrase, out of time, that it it just really struck us. And it it was unlike anything we had heard before, and we decided to go with it. And it's been a huge hit, and hopefully it um, stays around for a few years, but who knows? Well, Billy Hartnell is uh, he's pretty old. I mean, what happens when he decides to leave the show? Well, he's, he is getting up there, I won't lie, but he really does love playing the role. He didn't want to take the role at first, as you may, you know, as many know, but um, he just went right into it and became the doctor. He has had children meet him in parks and ask for his autograph, and he's just become such a huge thing. I mean, he already was a big star before he became on Doctor Who, but he had been tap-casted. And he didn't like the fact that he had been typecasted. And so this was a very different role for him. And I've just been awed and amazed at how well he fit with it. And when he leaves, who knows? Um, I'm sure the doctor will carry out, on somehow. It, it was pointed out by Carrie Doherty, who uh, 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 we may have seen in previous shows, um, that the composer of the theme was Ron Grainer, uh, an Australian. Um, and Delia Derbyshire was the one who implemented this composition. So she 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 essentially orchestrated it electronically. But originally the piece was by Ron Grainer, uh, and this is the fellow that uh, that RL uh, Vicky Lucas had had mentioned. Um, how well versed in the BBC Radiophonic uh, studio uh, are you, uh, Ms. Lambert, and or Vicky Lucas? <sighs> Honestly, I wish I had more time to spend in there because they, the work that they do is just so fascinating. But when you spend hours on set in the hot, hot lights, I might add, and it was a really tiny studio. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have much time to spend in the other parts of the, the program. So Ron Grainer, when I, when I finally, someone sent me the actual piece that he had composed, it's very small. He, he basically, it was as if he just wrote it on a napkin and then handed it over. So when she began to implement it, she had to enlarge it a little bit. She had to go places with it. And so she was able to use the, the, the electronic equipment that they had to make sounds it wasn't built to make in order to do that. And, uh, and real quick, before we go on to talking about art, I just wanted to say I, uh, I'm catching reruns of the, of the uh, British show Space Patrol, um, which I believe is also called Planet Patrol. Um, and the music for that is very interesting too. And, and you, can, you can hear the echoes of the Doctor Who theme in it, that sort of electronic, 
almost almost aggressive alien sound to it. It's it's really quite interesting if you get a chance to hear it. I'd like to talk. I'd like to talk about op art and minimalist art, um, which are two of the biggest movements right now, and and in many ways go hand in hand. Um, and I think Cora and I have done the most. Uh, have prepared a couple of galleries for you. I would love to see what Cora's got, and then I'd be happy to show the works that I have been granted prints to display on this program. So Cora, tell us what you got on pop, uh, excuse me, op and minimalism. Okay. Well, um, I'll, um, if we get the presentation, otherwise I'll just switch, uh, just show my screen. Just have to switch it on. Okay. Now you should be, um, I'm having a connection problem here, so I can't use screen share, sorry. At any rate, okay, um, well, minimalism is um, a movement which, uh, which appeared in the late 1950s in New York City, and it's basically a reaction against abstract expressionism, so um, Jackson Pollock and the like, the like, and the minimalists um, believe that the abstract expressionist is a bit too... They, like, they wanted to take abstraction to its ultimate end, so they use pure forms, geometric forms, um, forms, plain colors, plain materials. They don't like the expressionist part. And the big uh, names are Frank Stella and um, Agnes Martin, among others, who are both uh, painters. And I actually have some paintings of them, but um, since my connection is gone, <laughs> I, can't, I can't share them with you. I'm sorry. And um, the op art people um, also go for also go for abstraction, but um, they use optical illusions and optical effects to create uh, paintings which seem to move. Of okay, now I can maybe show you something. Let's see if this works. Welcome back. The satellite is back in position. Okay, so this is a work by Frank Stella the minimalist artist and um, unfortunately I've forgotten what it's called now but you can see it's very plain black and white colors plain canvas and um, the stri and uh, those stripes are actually painted in house paint because um, Frank Stella works as a house painter in his day job and here's a somewhat more cheery work of minimalist art by Agnes Martin, yes, a lady, because we have some actually we have some women artists here, and this one is called Summer, and it's uh, well, you can see blue watercolor with a grid. So this is very plain, um, plain art, minimalism, and um, pure abstraction. And now I will show you some op art. Okay, this work is called Duel by Julian Stanchak, who is a Polish-born um, American artist and you can see that his uh, that it seems to um, seems to sort of shimmer in front of your eyes, and that's an optical illusion created by the black and white um, white look. And um, Julian Stenzel was one of the one of the first op artists. Here's another work of op art. This one is by Bridget Riley, a lady from Britain, from Britain. And um, if you look closely, it seems to move. And again, it's just an just an optical illusion. Nothing is moving here. Okay, so those are two really exciting new trends in artwork. And um, okay, uh, I have to shut it. Okay, now I should. 
now I'm back. Before we, before we talk about op, let me show off my gallery. But even before we do that, uh, Ben Greenstein asked what the cities of the future will look like. And architecture is definitely something that we will talk about. And Cora is an expert on. Uh, let me show off this interesting picture. So some believe, can everybody see this? So some believe that eventually density will have to go through the roof and the skyscrapers and high-rise apartment complexes that we are seeing, the steel and glass-sided landscape uh, that is starting to dominate places like New York uh, will become universal. And the, the examples we are seeing today may be tiny microcosms of the arcologies, I believe they're being called, these cities in a building that will become commonplace in, say, 50 years when the Earth is crushed shoulder to shoulder with a population perhaps as much as 6 billion people. I'm not even sure if the planet could hold that many people, but as you can see, we may see what I, what I call uh, city farms like this uh, in our, our future. And now I want to show off to you a couple of pieces of art um, that... Uh, go along with what Cora was talking about. Can everyone see that all right? So this is Bridget Riley. She is a mm -hmm. British op artist. Uh, Cora Bullard mentioned some of her works and she is a, a, a master of this sort of rippling effect. The, the amazing thing about op art is its simplicity uh, and yet doing what uh, what Victor Vassarelli says is making colors do something that they don't do themselves. Um, here's an example of minimalism meeting op art. This is perhaps one of the grand grandparents of, uh, of op art. This is Joseph Albert's homage to the square. Yes, deceptively simple, but I think it says a lot um, with its few elements. This is Julian Stansack's passing contours uh, and this one's interesting because it uses clashing colors to make effects it tricks your eyes and makes relief that, you, that isn't actually there to give this a three-dimensional effect it wouldn't otherwise have it's actually using the configuration of our eyes um, to do amazing tricks that that uh, a, a, some other creature might not see this way this is Larry Poons's Nixus Mate. Again, this uses the after image of your eyes. If you stare at this thing for a while and then blink, um, you get a, a three-dimensional effect that you normally wouldn't get. You certainly wouldn't get in black and white. Um, really interesting stuff. Again, just pure simplicity and yet using our eyes to play tricks to add elements to the art that wouldn't otherwise be there. This is Richard Anusevitz's Radiant Green. And this is pretty typical of his work, this sort of starburst coming out of a geometric figure. Um, this is really pretty and I'd love to have it on my wall. This is also sort of representative of the kind of colors we're starting to see in these 60s, these sort of vibrant, absolutely not in nature colors. And here's Victor Vassarelli with his last year's Banya. Um, he's got a lot of interesting pieces. There's one called Orion CC, which just looks like a cavalcade of blue, red, yellow, and purple galaxies. But this one's pretty neat too. And you can see the depth that it's a two-dimensional painting and yet it looks 3D, maybe even four-dimensional. If you, if you took some of uh, Dr. Leary's LSD, uh, perhaps this would really speak to you. This is 
Interesting. So um, op art and minimalism are not restricted to th two dimensions. And in fact, we're starting to see minimalist op art sculpture. This is Francois Morellet's sphere of aluminum tubes. It's actually a four foot sphere. It's normally suspended from the ceiling. Um, and you can see it, it has almost this otherworldly look to it. You could, you could get lost in those contours. Uh, and one of the last ones I wanted to show you, this is from a series that Dan Flavin did in New York last year, one of the many monuments for V. Tatlin. Um, this is an installation he did in, a, in the green room in a museum in New York. And you can see there's not very much to it. It's all about lines and perspective and, and location. Um, and yet this, this sort of thing is becoming really big right now. Art is no longer about representation or about overwhelming the senses. It's about inspiring a feeling through simple geometry. Um, I think we're gonna see a lot of this in our architecture, uh, certainly in our interior decoration. Uh, and it's a movement I've become very fond of. Uh, Dan Flavin also makes some really, I don't have a picture right now, but he also makes some really amazing, um, well, installations uh, from uh, neon tubes, um, which are from col colored or plain neon tubes. And well, it's a meeting of um, basically advertising signage and art. And I think they look amazing. I've seen one in the flesh and um, it's fascinating. I actually happen to have an example of that. So this is a this is a installation. This this is the ins, an installation. This is the installation I was talking about. He's uh, apparently all gone to light tubes now. So that's just some of the art. Now Cora has also done a bit of research into the interesting world of pop art, which has nothing to do with op art. Cora, tell us a little bit about pop art. Well, pop art is basically the opposite of minimalism and op art because um, they are all about um, images and also representation. But um, basically the pop artists say, feel that um, abstract expressionism doesn't say anything to them. And also the minimalists don't say anything about their life. But fine art of the olden days also says nothing about our modern life. And so they started creating art based on images they saw all around them. And what are those images? Well, they are advertising images, product, product packaging. Comic books are quite popular among the pop artists. And well, I'll show you some pictures. Um, just have to switch this on. Okay. Okay, uh, this is actually architecture, but uh, we'll see it now. Okay, I hope you can see this. Um, now we see some pop. This is actually architecture. Sorry, wrong picture. This one is um, one of the seminal works of pop art. It's um, called What is it that makes today's home so different, so appealing? By Richard Hamilton, a British artist. And as you can see, it's a collage. It's cut out of um, it's a cut out of magazine pictures and similar things. And well, I always say, I think the answer might be the big bodybuilder <laughs> builder with a strategically placed sign. And um, if you look- You don't know the, this, but that's, that's actually me. And uh, <laughs> I, I was clean shaven, this was last year. I've let myself go a little bit since then. Oh, you were so handsome. <laughs> 
Well, I know. It was no, 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 Thirty-nine, and everything went to pot. <laughs> and uh, you can see in the back, there's um, there's a cover of a of a comic book, Young Romance, and um, an American artist, Roy Lichtenstein, uses comic books as his inspiration, like this one. This is not a comic panel, but it's Roy Lichtenstein's Drowning Girl, which is based on a panel from a DC Comics um, romance comic called Secret Hearts. And um, he, so he copies these, co these comic book panels. I have another one. This one is called Wham. It's from All American Men of War. <laughs> and um, what Roy Lichtenstein does is, the story is that Roy Lichtenstein has a young son. And one day, his young son showed him a Mickey Mouse comic book and says, OK, Dad, I bet you can't draw as well as that. And Roy Lichtenstein <laughs> took, the, took the challenge and he painted a Mickey Mouse painting. And ever since then, he has been copying comic books, including the dots, the Ben Day dots from the printing process. I don't know if you have a comic book in hand, but if you look at it, it's um, you can see um, all those little dots, dots. And that's from the printing process. And here's a work by another American. And OK, if you think if this reminds you of your supermarket, you're not alone. This work is called 32 Campbell Soup Pants, and it's by Andy Warhol, an American artist of Chef Origin. And um, Andy Warhol does a lot of art based on, on product packaging and advertising images because he used to be an he used to be an advertising artist artist and um, actually did uh, shoe commercials. And um, he also started uh, copying. Um, image copying uh, all sorts of photos of celebrities. For example, he did um, something called the Marilyn Diptych, which are a lot of photos of Marilyn Monroe, or one about Elvis and uh, Elizabeth Taylor. And recently, he's also started doing a series called Death and Disasters, based on news photographs of car crashes, um, crashes, suicides, executions, and the like. It's um, rather gloomy, so, well, I probably prefer for the Roy Lichtensteins. And here's another work of pop art. This is a this is Robert Indiana, another American artist, and his work is very typographically based and is also on the edge of um, to op art and minimalism because um, he uses road signs, uh, signs and typography for inspiration. This one is called the Triumph of Tira, and I hear that Robert Indiana will be designing greeting cards for the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. So, well, you can soon own your very own Robert Indiana work if you go there and buy some greeting cards from the gift shop. And um, that's it for me right now. Okay, we'll switch this and I'm back. <laughs> so um, to the, your point about Andy Warhol, I saw an article that apparently there was an exhibit in New York that was a display of that sort of thing, uh, typical grocery items. And, and art aficionados would come in and they would buy an installation that might be a few cans of food. They would buy this installation for like $100,000. <laughs> this was art, but it was, it was basically a three-dimensional rendition of, of his soup cans. I don't know if you'd heard about that. Yes, uh, I, I did. Where art is going. Um, well, um, Art is always, I mean, it's not a new idea to just take um, an object, an uh, object from the real world. Marcel Duchamp, one of the early surrealists, 
did this as early as um, 1915, I think, when he took a urinal, like one of those things you find in the men's bathroom, and placed it on the wall, signed it, and called it Fountain. And it's a very important piece of art. It's held in, in a museum in Paris. So um, Andy Warhol isn't actually doing anything that's new. Whether actually people will pay for it, I don't know. I mean, I like the Roy Lichtensteins. Then I like the op art paintings. I also, I could probably, I like Robert Indiana. And um, I'm not sure if I would, I wouldn't want the death and disasters on my wall. I might take Marilyn or Liz Taylor or even Elvis. I'm not sure I want a temple soup pan because um, if I want that, I go, into, go to the cellar, to the pantry. But um, I mean, as long as people are willing to pay for it, then it is art. And I think um, we will be seeing more along those lines. Well, I, I personally enjoy the uh, the artwork, the uh, the real life expressionism of uh, Mr. Hugh Hefner of California. Uh, of course, I haven't actually seen any of them because my subscription to his uh, periodical is just for the articles. Um, speaking of interesting cultural trends, I wanted to detour to Erica because she always has the most interesting kooky news. And I was interested to find out what's going on in the world of the weird right now. Um, let's see. Last year, Idris Shah, a um, scholar and uh, uh, a professor of uh, mystical and religious studies, published his book, The Sufis, about a mystical group of Muslims, the ones who are into deep spirituality. Um, and let's see. So, I put you on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> I was all caught up in um, thinking about the new psychedelic art that's coming out and trying to find examples of it. Uh, as they, on the other side of the not minimalist trade, there are people doing amazing things with color and, and psychedelic imagery that I'm trying to find one of and lost track of. That's um, okay. Just, just you can give us verbal pictures. Okay. Uh, there. Well, I'll have. A person in a garden. There's lots, lots of mystical imagery of Garden of Eden and stars and galaxies with lots of colors flowing on the page. The uh, the opening scene, the music for Doctor Who. They'll have a lot of imagery like that with the the swirling shapes in all sorts of colors. Um, a lot of this is somewhat can be inspired by LSD, which is currently being used in psychological studies to see if it's something that can treat psychosis and alcoholism and other um, psychiatric disorders. Um, Erica, what is the, LSD and what is it legal? What's the effect on the human mind? It, it's legal. It's lysergic acid diethylamide which is why we all call it LSD. And uh, it's a drug that strongly affects 
uh, the mind and the emotions and has been said to open one to mystical experiences. Most of it is fully legal. Um, Timothy Leary got fired for involving undergrads in his student in his um, experiments with it. <laughs> Apparently he, not because he get their permission to give drugs to your students, but because he didn't have the proper permissions. <laughs> um, speaking of uh, we're starting to see experience the West Coast. <laughs> speaking of interesting experiences, I would love to play uh, Oliveros's uh, piece and uh, and Vicky can give us a little bit of commentary as it plays. Okay, um, Pauline Oliveros uh, is the only woman who is currently working with the Tate Music Center in San Francisco. There are minimalists like uh, Steve Reich and Terry Riley whom I've seen there. Um, her music is sometimes electronic, but it is sometimes just um, instruments, and the instruments can be put together in very odd ways. Her music also appears to be deeply theatrical. She will dress people up in costumes and insist that they use props. Sometimes they're quite funny. Um, Bye Bye Butterfly, as you're hearing it now, is just electronic so far. It's um, hard to say where her music will go. She often, she's, she likes the accordion. And so when you listen to her music, you often hear her playing the accordion. However, she does play several instruments, so she might play something else. If this is driving people batty, you can shut it off. It's okay. <laughs> I know that people are sometimes um, put off by electronic music because it's it seems random but these are all trained musicians they are used to using the instruments of composition of harmony and so on they just might not choose to use those in any one composition so i like this one but like i say if it's driving people back <laughs> um i did attend one one tape music concert that might be amusing. Um, we were let into the the main. We came into the lobby. We gave their little tickets. We paid our money, etc. We had an usher take us in to seat us. We would each be seated, and then I I sat down and look around me. The usher brings someone in and says, "Oh, I'm sorry. They have your seat," and he consults <laughs> your ticket. She looks at your ticket, she looks at the other person's ticket, and she very carefully displaces you and puts you, in this case me, and puts me in another seat. Then the next person who comes in, she displaces the person who just came in before them, and she puts them in another seat. So this is the experience of the whole audience, right? We sit down, we watch for a little while, and we notice that there is a piece of not quite translucent plastic in front of us. And that not quite translucent plastic is hiding most of a baby grand piano, which it is just kind of draped over so that you could play the keyboard, but the sounding board is behind the plastic. Eventually, with some playing on the piano, that's raised. But after a while, there's another plastic sheeting. So you never see the performers. 
And then after a while, the performers all leave. You hear on the floor ahead above you, all of the performers having a party and you weren't invited. So that was the concert. <laughs> Talk about minimal. <laughs> um, Jessica Rydell asks something about, uh, it looks like Moog, but I happen to know it's pronounced Moog. So apparently uh, yes. a man named Moog has developed an electronic instrument. Uh, it's a very large instrument composed of many modules. Uh, and this is an instrument that may revolutionize the way music is made. Right now, if you want to make electronic music, it generally requires a lot of custom, as, as Ms. Lambert can tell you, and also Vicki Lucas, requires custom-built electronic equipment. Um, and it often requires also using your reel-to-reel -reel decks to cut pieces of tape together to make exactly what you want. What, what Moog has made is a device that allows you to change the form and the frequency of the sound it makes on the fly. So this is something that uh, eventually you can create your own electronic music, you can make your own sounds, you can you can do live compositions. This is something, if, they, if you can ever shrink it smaller than a room, could be something that we see in concerts someday. And, and live acoustic instruments may become a thing of the past. So this is a very interesting development. I don't know that any compositions have been recorded or done on it, um, but I understand there was a demonstration at the University of Toronto last year. So excellent question. And Jessica, you must be very much in the know because you have to be uh, an, an audiophonic esthete to know anything about that. Uh, and Jimmy Croft asks about the use of theremin in TV, movies, popular music. Um, I'd be interested in everyone else's experience. To me, it sounds like the theremin was much more of a thing of the 50s than this decade. But uh, perhaps you have insight that I don't. Um, I, I have, yeah, I have some experience with uh, something like the Moog uh, device because John Buchla made something like that and brought it into the Tape Music Center lobby one night for Martin Subotnik to look at. The theremin, it, it's a radio device. Um, he invented it uh, quite some time ago, but, uh, Clara Rockmore, I guess, has been playing it. And do you know anything about uh, a fellow named uh, Harry Parch? <laughs> wonderful, wonderful music. Um, he makes his own instruments, mainly out of glass. And they are the most incredible things that, that I think I've ever heard. Uh, because they, they just don't sound like anything else, any other instrument. They don't sound electronic. They, they are just, they are sometimes struck, sometimes uh, like you would do with a wine glass. Um, he has an entire orchestra full of glass instruments. Now, I wanted to shift gears real quick while we're waiting for the next question. Uh, Erica, last year, Lorelei and I attended an interesting anti-chronological event called a renaissance fair i believe it was the first of its kind and it was basically this this giant camp that looked like we were somewhere in the 16th century and we all wore costumes from the time and i understand this sort of reaction to the modern day maybe something we see more of these days is this a movement you know anything about uh a little bit because it ties into um 
several of the other folk revival movements. The, um, the Druids of Carleton College, which I wrote about in the, at the journey, um, were a, are a small religious movement. And they, uh, because the college requires all students to attend chapel, they didn't like any of the existing options. So they announced that they were Druids and they would be holding chapel services on the out on the in the trees on the lawn and enjoying their sacred beer and they raised libations to the mother earth goddess and sat around and drank beer and over time they have developed um a set of rituals and they've brought in medieval looking robes as their religious garb and that ties into a lot of the um historical recreation societies and the renaissance fair is uh has a lot of people looking at traditional peasant wear clothing that are loose and comfortable and very colorful and uh, looking into what we can draw from that era that is feels more organic and friendly than today's corporate life. I, I have to wonder if that's we're your about to see more of sort of a a, a, a modern day Walden where, where people, sort of this back to nature movement. You know, originally the, the beat generation was all about getting on the road um, and seeing America. I have to wonder if, if the 60s are all going to be about tuning out from America and, and just withdrawing this this what I think they're calling it future shock. This idea that that the technology in the world is just coming too quickly these days. Um, certainly, when I turn on the radio, in fact, I, I have an example right here. To to a lot of people, this is just raucous noise. Now I happen to dig it, but. By the way, for those of you who don't know, uh, I live in 1965, and this is a live radio station which you can access yourself. Our kindly moderator is actually going to show you how to get there. Uh, also in my house, we, oh my goodness, I, I hesitate to show you this. This is my portable television. It only weighs 20 pounds. But as you can <laughs> see on TV right now is the wonderfully hysterical show, Dobie Gillis. I mean, Gilligan's Island. Starring Bob Denver and a host of others. It's not a good show. Have any of you been following Gilligan's Island this season? I generally turn it off and it's only on because afterwards we get to watch Danger Man. <laughs> Doesn't sound like it's my thing. <laughs> uh, Jessica wants to know if this is a transistor radio. And it absolutely is. This is the revolution in music right now. Um, until... Until recently, the, a portable radio might weigh as much as 15 pounds. And before that, you couldn't even get that. They were giant pieces of furniture. Now you can carry music around in your pocket. Now, the fidelity is not amazing, but that's okay because they only broadcast this music on AM anyway, and the music is compressed um, to sound well enough. Um, I actually go to sleep each night listening to the radio. Um the other nice thing about transistor radios is they turn on immediately as opposed to vacuum tube radios, which take uh, several seconds to warm up. 
Um, speaking of ultra modern things, Verity, I wanted to ask, um, where are the doctor and the companions right now as we speak? Well, yesterday we just premiered the third part of the Space Museum. And unfortunately, as far as rating goes, it didn't do as well as the second part. But we have one more to release in the series, and hopefully it'll make a comeback. But yes, they are currently in the Space Museum, and uh, the Doctor isn't quite present as much as we would like. Uh, and that's for, for those of us in the background know, uh, William wanted to take a break. He, as you had mentioned before, he is getting up there in age. So we wrote this series to focus more on his companions so that he could have a little bit of time off. And uh, who are doctor, the doctor's companions at the moment? So we have uh, the plucky young Susan and we have her teachers. Is it still Susan? I understood Susan was replaced by another character. Uh, Vicky, was it? Yes, she she was replaced by Vicky, um, and I apologize if I'm still stuck with Susan. I just love the actress so much. <laughs> um, do we have any uh, sneak previews you can drop about uh, where they're going to be going before this second season is out, after they, they're done in the Space Museum? Well... Unfortunately, not at this time. You know, I am under contract, so I can't really release things ahead of time. But no, not even a little hint about where they might be in the next few months? Well, you know, the doctor always has his plans on where he wants to go, and sometimes he doesn't always get there because the TARDIS has a mind of its own. As we have seen, uh, I think that's Jessica, one of Jessica Holmes's least favorite episodes when uh, they're trapped in the TARDIS, they start getting murderous and it turns out it's all because of a stuck valve. Yes. You didn't write that one though. No. <laughs> all right. I want the audience to ask some questions, whether about Doctor Who or modern art or modern music or just weird kooky stuff. We are going to sit here and look at the camera for the next 30 seconds until we have a great question from the audience. Uh, apparently we have a question about fashion. What's the question about fashion? There's two of them. I will boost the first one. Can you see it? Yes. So Jimmy Croft says, I always check the movie credits for the costume gown designer, Adrian Ori Kelly, head, etc. How do movies influence popular fashion? So unfortunately, Jimmy, you picked the episode that is not our fashion episode. We actually have an amazing <laughs> fashion correspondent named Gwyn Conaway. Uh, and she may be a guest at one of our later shows. So we're going to save uh, discussions of fashion later, but I also see we just got a whole slew of questions. So apparently my holding breath worked. So let's start with Eileen Salma. She wants to know what the number one TV show is right now. I'll have to get out my TV guy, which is a weekly periodical. So I know exactly what the uh, number one TV show is. Uh, I understand Bewitched 
is number three. Um, which, yeah, it shocked me too. And apparently the Munsters is doing better than the Adams family, which is also a crime. Um, all right. Well, it's going to come as no surprise that the number one show right now is Bonanza. Uh. <laughs> uh, because the Western will not die in the United States. Um, another very popular show right now is Gomer Pyle, USMC, starring Jim Neighbors, and apparently it's a spin-off show of The Andy Griffith Show. Now, The Andy Griffith Show is quite a nice show. Uh, Gomer Pyle is, it's, I would say, on a scale of 1 to 10, it is definitely one of those numbers. Um, and not near the top. Um, that said, uh, Jim Neighbors does have a have a charm to him. I have to admit, um, and his shows do tend to be at least reasonably respectful. Um, so, uh, but yeah, westerns are still still up there. Uh, what's an oh? Uh, uh, can Verity tell us anything about the Doctor Who movie? Verity, what do you know about the Doctor Who movie coming up? Can't show you. I think her. She, I think she's still finding her uh, her uh, her satellite feed. So we'll get back to her with that question. Um, all right. So the next question will be predictions for the next trends. In oh, never mind. Ben Greenstein says with psychedelic music becoming mainstream, that's news to me. Actually, that's not quite true. I think I heard something by the Shirelles the other day, which was, was really interesting uh, in, a, in a psychedelic sort of vein. Um, anyway, he asked, with psychedelic music becoming mainstream, the music of the future will be more experimental. Um, definitely. Uh, we're already seeing people experiment with all kinds of interesting things. Um, even I mentioned Phil Spector. He has this studio in L.A., which is this <coughs> giant echoey room, and he gets the most interesting effects out of there. Um, people are definitely experimenting with music, even in, in pop sounds. Um, and Ben, I understand you're a musician yourself. So I think we should probably have a special music episode, perhaps sometime in June or July, where you can come on as a guest. What do you think about that? Um, and then Lawson Featherstone. What a fine, fine English name that is, Lawson Featherstone. Hello, hello, your lordship. Lord Featherstone um, asks, uh, is music going to be more and more electronic? And and as I mentioned with talking about Moog, uh, oh, Erica is shaking her head. Do you disagree? You think it's going to go more natural? <laughs> I, I think we're going to see a blend because in the uh, pagan revival and the back to nature communities, we're seeing a lot more acoustic and folk music. Say, I have here last year's new album from Joan Baez, Five, which has several traditional songs and some by one by Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan's new trendy song, It Ain't Me, Babe, and a song by Phil Ox and a child traditional ballad. So we're seeing a mix in the, um, of the, if there's the avant-garde movement, which is having a lot of psychedelic music and strange sounds and what electronic music can we make and we're seeing others on the other side a whole lot of acoustic music and very simple instruments with traditional themes and i'd love to see how those are going to blend 
but I don't think it's going to go all electronic. Cora, you are you have your ear to the ground in in European music. Uh, what what is the trend there? Um, well, we also have um, have we're still going towards um, atonality, and we have a couple of um, of composers who are who are writing modern operas like Gottfried von Einem, who is um, I think he's German, might also be Austrian, or Christoph Penderecki whom I'm probably mispronouncing, he's Polish, and um, they are creating uh, classical, um, creating basically modern classical music. And well, pop music is as it always is. German pop music, sorry, is very, very bad. It's called Schlager, it's happy songs, happy music. Not my thing at all, but, um, and um, whether it's going to go more electronic, I think if the price for the electronic instruments comes down and if they are, get smaller, smaller, then I think more people will use them. But um, right now, simply for a young musician, it's not possible to do it. And um, and so um, unless you build your own, as um, Vicky told us, so um, I think it will take a while until we hear more electronic music. So Gideon, I, I apologize for my, my break. I had to... Um, Go find. I actually have a friend who gave me a piece of information on the movie coming up. I'm not personally involved in it, so I do apologize. But from what he was telling me, he was saying that it's a all new cast, same characters. Our first doctor, Peter Cushing, will be playing our first doctor, and we have Susan and Barbara also recast for, for the movie. But my favorite aspect of it is that we're bringing back the Daleks. Oh. So other than that, I don't know a whole lot about it, but anything with my with the Daleks is bound to be an exciting adventure. Because uh, everybody needs their toilets plunged. Yes. <laughs> um, Ethan has an interesting question. Ethan Marcus, that's, a, that's an interesting name. I wonder if we were perhaps related because he has the same last name as I do. Um, but uh, he asks if there are commercial recordings of shows. I know that there are some uh, vinyl record, uh, uh, vinyl records of highlights of shows, um, but for the most part, I, I don't know that you can commercially purchase, um, say, reel-to-reel -reel tapes of shows. Uh, and generally, if we want to, if we want to watch something, we either have to catch it on a rerun or a kinescope. Um, sometimes we're lucky enough to catch British shows in the United States. Uh, Danger Man has come over. Um, obviously, uh, the works of Jerry and Sylvia Anderson have come over, the, the Marionation ones, uh, Planet Patrol, maybe Doctor Have you guys Who got the man from Uncle yet? Say again? Have you guys got the man from <coughs> Uncle? Uh, I don't have any audio of it, but yes, uh, we're in its first season. It's got Robert Vaughn and um, British actor. I can't remember his name, but he plays a Russian. Uh, and Ethan says he wants to know if he can hear foreign shows on his hi-fi. I don't know if he's if he's asking whether it's a radio broadcast of these shows or what. Um, but not that I'm aware of, unless unless you record it off the air on one of your one of your tape recorders um, and then uh, and then rebroadcast it. Eileen Eileen tells me that the man who plays Ilya is David McCallum, who was uh, in a pretty good Outer Limits episode uh, last year, actually. Yes. 
Uh, Ethan is apparently asking about reel-to-reel -reel tapes of shows. Uh, I have not seen this phenomenon, but it might exist. Has anyone managed to purchase a reel-to-reel -reel audio recording of a TV show? The answer is no. <laughs> All right, Melinda Croft asks about predictions for the next trends in modern art. Well, um, I think pop art will still last for a couple of years, but um, I don't think it, I don't see it going indefinitely. It's probably gone in five years and so on. I actually think minimalism has more of a chance to last, uh, last, and it will probably go more into sculpture and also into public sculpture. The first public Minimalist sculptures have already been erected, and I think we will see more of that. Um, and, well, some of the pop artists will probably keep going. I mean, Andy Warhol and Roy Lichtenstein, they're famous and have a good gig going. So they will keep going for a while. But um, the, actually, I think, as Erika mentioned, psychedelia and psychedelic imagery might be um, a new trend that's coming as more people experiment with LSD and other substances. And it will probably merge with op art. And op art is also something I see going into um, product and interior design because um, the simple black and white imagery and very decorative. So I suspect we will be seeing op art inspired interiors in the future. And abstract expressionism will also go on, go on. And of course, on the other side of the Iron Curtain, they're all about what they call socialist realism, which is heroic imagery of, well, heroic workers and farmers and so on. It's not really my thing. I've seen it uh, when visiting family in East Germany, me, but um, it will go, will go on at least um, for as long um, as um, the Iron Curtain is up and that will be up for a while now. Actually, it's sad that there's so much for socialist realism now because um, the Russian constructivists in the very early days after the revolution were actually some of the pioneers of modern abstract art and uh, the inspiration for, for today's um, minimalist artists. So it's kind of sad that they went completely against abstract art in the East. I, uh, if, if I have a prediction to make from my 1965 perspective, knowing absolutely nothing about the future, it's been my experience that all art goes through a, a innovative period followed by a Baroque decadent period. So I think I, I, I expect that the, the minimalism will become ultra minimalist to the point where we're just seeing, I don't know, a screw or something. And, and the colors will become ridiculously vivid but the, the implementation will be stark. That would, that would be my guess. Um, does anyone else have any insight on where we're going with art uh, before we go to our final messages? Vicki. Um, well, I hope that you get a chance to listen to the music you love and see the movies that you're interested in and i wish you a good week <laughs> well don't leave yet uh erica any thoughts on where art is going um i would like to see art that looks like something <laughs> <laughs> I, I enjoy some of the, the minimalist 
these are very nice colors and shapes. But you might like Gerhard Richter. Looking at it, you might what? like Gerhard. Yeah, you might like Gerhard Richter. He's a new German artist and um, a very young man in his thirties, and he paints um, sort of blurred copies of paintings of, of photos, but not news photos, but it's family photographs, such as um, a photo of himself uh, as a baby with his aunt and so on. And he's an up-and-coming artist. Joseph Boyce is another up-and-coming artist. He's an, currently a lecturer at a university, and um, he is all about, uh, he's into performance art and, uh, and very ready. So that's also something I think we will see more of, performance art. It's quite popular in Europe right now, in Germany and Austria. Speaking of performance art, Patrick McGowan in Danger Man, is a national treasure. <laughs> so if you get a chance, please pick up, uh, please uh, watch Danger Man when it reruns. Check local listings for information. <laughs> Let me finish with our sponsors. The sponsors of this show are, in fact, the great Journey Press, putting out amazing classics, modern and vintage. So as you know, last year, Galactic Journey sponsored the creation of Rediscovery, Science Fiction by Women, 1958 to 1963. It is a collection of 14 of the best stories of the Silver Age of Science Fiction, all of them written by women, by names if you're in the know, you will be familiar with, but you may not be familiar with them. But all of them are excellent, and all of them are introduced by a number of uh, shall we say, rising stars of the future in 2020, and they include uh, Cora Bullard and Erica Frank. So do check out Rediscovery Science Fiction by Women. I promise it will be worth your time. Another book that you'll be interested in is my most recent book, what would be called a juvenile, but it is really for all ages. It is a hard science fiction space adventure called Kitra. And Keetra has been doing quite well this last month, perhaps because it has themes of isolation, teamwork, and hope, which I understand are things that are important somehow to the people of 55 years in the future. So I strongly recommend you pick it up. And in fact, the interior illustrations are by none other than the young traveler herself. Hi, Lorelai. Hello. Uh, Hello, <laughs> so if you want to see art of the future, well, Keetra contains several images by an artist of the future. Uh, finally, uh, and I will let Cora Bullard take this over. I understand Cora Bullard, who is a fine author, I bought many of her books actually, um, has come out with a brand new book. Tell us about it. Well, um, I'm writing a series of um, what we now call Sword and Sorcery. And it's basically um, stories, if you know, um, Perfart and Grey Mauser by Fritz Leiber or Conan the Barbarian by the late Robert E. Howard, quite late actually, he died 30 years ago. Or, um, or if you, or Michael Moorcock's Elric and or Brax the Barbarian by John Jakes, um, it's similar to that. And this, it's a core series about the adventures of a barbarian from the Eastern Steppes called Turvok. And his good friends, Meldum, who is a thief and uh, occasional assassin, and Sharena, a sorceress, and Turvok's girlfriend, and then Lisha, who's Meldum's girlfriend, 
and um, they have adventures and trenders and the new one is called the tentacles Terror, where they go in search of a treasure on a sort of atlantis like um, sunken island which occasionally rises every hundred years and that's just a problem the treasure is guarded by a lovecraftian monster so if you like that sort of thing it's great fun and well you can purchase it for the low for a low price at the vendor of your choice and uh is this a is this a, a satire a pastiche or or an honorable homage um it's an honorable homage i mean um i make a bit of uh, there's a bit of i poke a bit of fun at um the at um, the conventions of the genre for example at lovecraft's uh, tendency to always describe oh it's an indescribable horror then someone says okay that's helpful <laughs> <laughs> so well i mean you can but it's a uh, but it's uh, it's serious it's serious um, from the adventures point of view and it's quite popular actually every because um, people who like um, sword and sorcery as we're now calling it i think fritz live and michael moka came up with the name for the genre a few years ago and so well it's i think it will i think a lot of it will be fun so the last thing i'd like to say is the journey thanks thanks to you and your consistent turnout every two weeks not only do you make this such a wonderful experience filming this before a live studio audience uh, so we can replay it before the world for months and months and months. And we're already still getting rave reviews for our previous show. So thank you for that. But we're going to keep doing it throughout the summer, maybe throughout the year. Every single two weeks, we're going to have an edition of The Journey Show. And in fact, the one we're having in two weeks is particularly exciting because we'll be discussing the 1965 Hugo Ballot, which has just come out. So we don't know who's going to win in 1965, but we at least know who the contenders are uh, at this year's Worldcon in London. So we'll be discussing what's on the ballot, who we think is going to win, who should not be on the ballot, and who really should have been on the ballot. So tune in in two weeks. You can register now to make sure you don't forget. We're going to have Hugo finalist James Davis Nickel with us, and we're very honored to have him there. And I believe he's also in the audience. Hello. And uh, Cora Bullard, of course, will also be there. Uh, other guests will include uh, comics historian Jason Sachs and the amazing Cold War pop culture expert Rosemary Benton. So we hope to see you on May 23rd. Same time, same place. Please register. And here's a happy goodbye from all of our guests on The Journey Show. Thank you once again for joining us. And we'll see you in two weeks.